We're going to be looking at the 23rd Psalm this evening, and the 23rd Psalm is probably, if we're talking not just a verse here and there, but entire long passages of Scripture, I would say that the 23rd Psalm is probably the best known, certainly one of the best loved passages in all of the Bible. In fact, if Tristan hadn't read it in its entirety a few minutes ago, I imagine that a lot of us could just quote it. Although if you're like me, even if you read from one version, my quotation would come out of the King James Version. I imagine a lot of us are like that. But this is a passage that we often read in times of stress and in sorrow. It's entered into the sick rooms. It's brought comfort in the valleys of life. It's dried a lot of tears. And I wonder if because we so often turn to it in those times of crisis, if maybe we don't fully appreciate the sort of quiet strength and encouragement that it can give us just in daily life, the powerful message that it has to teach us. And so tonight, I'd like to, us to consider this very familiar passage together for a few minutes again so that maybe we can become a little bit better acquainted with it. I think in that vein, it's interesting to note its location in the Psalter, the book of the Psalms. The 22nd Psalm is the Psalm of the Cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The 24th Psalm is then one that praises God as the King of Glory. So in other words, we're in between the cross on the one hand and the eternal kingdom on the other hand. We're in between Mount Calvary and Mount Zion. And right here in between those two, we have this place of green grass and still waters. It's a place of contentment and trust. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. And I think right there we need to take notice that that in itself is a remarkable statement. David had been a shepherd, right? He had spent his youth tending his father's sheep. So he knew what it meant to be a shepherd. That means he also knows, in a sense, what it means to be a sheep. Certainly he knows what sheep are like and he's comparing himself to sheep. Now, that is not an infrequent image in Scripture. We know that that's used quite a bit, but I hope you realize that is not a compliment when people are compared to sheep. You know, we tend to think of sheep as these cute, cuddly little animals. They're used a lot in, in advertising. You see them, what is it, Serta mattresses, I think, and they're jumping through people's brains as you're counting them. Or I think of this little uh, uh, cuddly, a Woolrich sheep my brother had, a stuffed animal when he was a boy. Sheep are, frankly, they're, they're dumb. They're some of the dumbest animals that there are. They are defenseless. Uh, they are dirty. So when human beings are compared to sheep, that's not a good thing. It's not saying that we're all cute and cuddly. 
When Isaiah says that we're all like sheep who've gone astray, that's bad. That means we're lost. We're adrift. We don't know how to get back. When Jesus looks out at the people with, the, with compassion and it says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, that's a real concern because sheep are completely and totally helpless when they're all alone. All through life, we are in search of security. From the time that we're children, hiding behind our, our mom or our dad. I remember when I was... Uh, a boy, I was painfully shy, and I still am, I just hide it better, but I remember more than once being strangers around and just grabbing on to my mother's leg there because I was afraid. But we don't change a whole lot when we get older. We're looking for security too. We watch our health as adults, what we eat, or we try to exercise, or we go to the doctor and we get regular checkups. We buy insurance of all sorts, health insurance, life insurance, automobile insurance, homeowner's insurance. Here in Liberty, you probably have flood insurance. We save up in different ways, a savings account. We try to put our money maybe into stocks or whatever. And I'm not saying any of those things is bad. But what David emphasizes here in those opening lines, the Lord is my shepherd. Our only real security lies there. Everything else, everything in this life is just an illusion. We need to place our trust in him. And then he says, I shall not want. When someone says that, when someone says, I shall not want, I shall not be in want, we need to immediately take notice because that's not common. You look around most of the world and it seems that no one is content. Nobody's satisfied. They always want more things. As a child, you want uh, more toys or you want more screen time. That's what I see with uh, a lot of kids, you know, whether it's video games or it's television. As teenagers, we want more popularity or we want more freedom. We want to be out from under the uh, iron fist of our parents. As adults, we want more possessions maybe. We want more house than we've got. We want a nicer car. We want more free time, whatever it may be. More, 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 more. We do well to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 4. And remember, he's writing this from a Roman prison Verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Follows that up saying, I know how to be brought low, abased, and I know how to be abound. Whether he's full or whether he's in want, it doesn't matter. What was the secret to that, Paul said? Because he knows he can do all three things through him, through Christ who strengthens him. God wants us to be happy, satisfied people, but the secret to that is trusting in Him. It sounds a lot like what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus deals at length with our anxieties. He talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Uh, the birds don't store up in barns. They don't plant any crops, and yet they don't go hungry. 
The lilies don't worry about what they're going to wear, and yet, as Jesus says, Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. He teaches us about the folly of needless worry about things, depending on how you translate this, you'll see it both ways, but which of you, just by thinking about it, by worrying about it, can add any little bit, even a few inches to his height? You can't do that. If you could, Abby would probably be taller. I'm going to be in trouble for that. (laughs) Or which of you, by worrying about it, can add even a single second to his span of life? You can't do it. That's the point. We can worry, we can fret, we can have anxiety over things, but God will take care of us. He'll provide for our needs if we trust Him. If, as Jesus says, we seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. Verse number 33. So you see the key there between Paul's statement that he can be content because he can do all things through Christ. Jesus says all of these material things will take care of themselves if we seek first the kingdom of God. It's just like David here. The only reason that David could say, I shall not want, is because he could first say, the Lord is my shepherd. Those two statements are linked. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. And with that theme in mind, I want us to just walk through the rest of the text here and let's note how the shepherd cares for his sheep. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads his sheep to a a lush pasture where there's plenty to eat. And what we have here is a picture of a sheep that's so satisfied, that's so content, that he lies down in that pasture. Well, the Lord has provided plenty for us, hasn't he? In this country in particular, I know that sometimes we have hard times, and I know that uh, some people are in worse straits than others. I acknowledge that. We've all probably had highs and lows. And yet we compare ourselves to others in the rest of the world. We compare ourselves to the long sweep of human history and nobody really is in need in a relative sense. God's provided. God takes care of us. There there are few of us who ever really truly go hungry. But notice the wording here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep sometimes have to be forced to lie down. I said they're not very smart. And the wise shepherd knows that that's essential because they need to be contented, they need to be at rest, or else it's going to cause all sorts of problems for them. Well, in just that same way, sometimes God makes us lie down, doesn't he? He has to force us to stop to take a beat, to think about things. We rush about trying to meet this obligation, trying to fulfill this duty that we have over here, and we're uh, so busy worried about things in this life that occasionally our priorities just get out of whack. And sometimes God has to force us to lie down and to take stock of things. That could happen in a lot of different ways. It could be an illness that we experience. It could be some kind of setback that we have in Uh, our career, or in our personal relationships with others. 
It could be a loss of a loved one, a heartbreak that we experience. This lying down is not necessarily something that we want or we desire in the moment, but it forces us to step back and to re-examine things, to reevaluate our priorities, and make sure that God's in the place that he ought to be. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep are very timid animals. They're not good swimmers, so they're afraid of rushing water. And you wouldn't be a good swimmer either if you had to wear a big heavy wool coat on your back. Well, that's how they are. And so the good shepherd guides them to quiet and still waters where they can drink in peace. God does that same thing for us. He knows our fears. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our insecurities. He knows our temptations. And he has promised us more than once in Scripture, but I think in particular, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, he's promised us that he won't allow us to be tempted above what we're able to bear. He's going to take care of us. He'll make a way of escape from temptation for us if we trust in him. He knows our weaknesses. He's not going to lead us into anything that will bring us to harm. In fact, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. A sheep has no sense of direction. A lot of animals, especially ones that we commonly deal with, that we consider intelligent, dogs, uh, cats, at least theoretically, uh, horses, all of these have a, a honing instinct. If they get lost, they can more or less, in most cases, find their way back home. Sheep don't have that. And furthermore, sheep have very limited eyesight. They can only see a few yards in front of them and around them. So a careless shepherd, he might lead his sheep over a dangerous path, and they wouldn't even know anything about it because they can't see the terrain that well. But the good shepherd is going to clear the way. He'll lead his sheep over a pathway that's safe. Scripture teaches us that there are two paths in life. One looks pretty easy, and it's broad. It's a wide way, and that's the way that Satan tries to get us to take. But it ultimately leads to destruction. On the other hand, there is a path of righteousness that leads to the eternal kingdom. And it, it's difficult sometimes. It's narrow. There's obstacles on the way. But the good shepherd knows which way his sheep are to go. And he guides us there along that way if we'll let him lead us in that path of righteousness. In fact, sometimes that pathway is so dark Verse number four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We all, in our pathway of life, walk through some fearsome valleys, disappointments that we have in our personal lives or in our uh, careers, illnesses that we experience, the losses of loved ones, whatever it may be, we can go on with this. Death, ultimately, as is mentioned here. But we don't need to be afraid when we walk through those valleys. 
Why? Because you are with me, David says. The good shepherd is right there by our side, walking with us, guiding us through those troubled valleys. In fact, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sheep are defenseless. They don't have any claws. They don't have any talons. They don't have razor-sharp teeth that they can fight back with in any way. They need the shepherd to defend them. And so the good shepherd carries a, a rod and a staff. The rod's a club, two to three feet long to beat off predators. The staff is that crooked, that hooked thing that they're used to seeing, pulling the sheep back from danger, about eight feet long. God promises us his peace and his protection. And in fact, I think one of the most remarkable statements in this psalm, it points out to us that while the forces of evil, while the devil is doing his worst to us, God is doing his best. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What a picture that is of the joy and the hope and the victory that we have when we're led by the Good Shepherd. Dr. Joseph Gilmore was the son of a governor of New Hampshire, and as a young man, he was a recent college graduate, and he was going around serving as a, a fill-in preacher at various different places. He was trying to start his career in ministry. And he was preaching in Philadelphia. It was the midweek service, March 26, 1862. And Gilmore decided to preach a lesson on the 23rd Psalm. Now, he'd done that several times before. That's what you do when you're a fill-in preacher. You got your two or three sermons that you know really well, and you can just do them everywhere, and man, everybody thinks you're so good. You don't have to come up with something every week. <laughs> But this time, this time he began his lesson and he said that he got no further than that line in verse number two. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And he said that thought of God's leading took hold of him like it never had before and he couldn't, couldn't get past that. He spent the entirety of his lesson honed in on that thought. If you notice that date, March of 1862, and you know anything about American history, you'll realize that the Civil War was going on then. And he said later that he wasn't conscious of that being on his mind. He didn't directly allude to that in any way in his lesson, but it could be that at least subconsciously he realized that in a world of uncertainty and in fact chaos, a world that seemed to be breaking down, the only security, the only certainty was found in allowing God to lead you. We must be sure that God is leading us. Well, after services were closed that night, he and some others from the congregation went back to the home of his host, uh, Mr. Watson. And they continued to talk about that thought of God leading them. And then and there, he was so inspired by it that he took some paper, back of a sheet that he actually had his notes on that he didn't use that night. And he wrote down the words to a poem. He scribbled it off really quickly. 
He didn't think any more thing more about it. He gave it to his wife. But his wife was so impressed by it that she took it and she sent it off to a paper, The Watchman and Reflector, which was published in Boston, and they went ahead and printed it. He didn't know that she'd done that until three years later, 1865. And he found out that she had done it because he went to try out for a preaching job in Rochester, New York, picked up the hymnal to see the songs that they were singing, and it just happened to fall open to the words that he had written that had been set to music by William J. Bradbury. We want to sing the song that he wrote tonight. He leadeth me. That's number 410 for those of you who use the songbooks. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly Thank you. 
May we all resolve to make David's shepherd, the good shepherd, our shepherd. And if we do, we have this tremendous promise. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want that. Don't you? If you need to make changes in your life to assure that you have that, you have the opportunity to make your need known while we stand and while we sing.